And Ephesians chapter 4, if you are not there already, Ephesians chapter 4, we'll be looking at verses 1 to 6 this morning. Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, truly it is our desire this morning that all glory would be to Christ. That even as we gather here, as Christ's church this morning here in Altoona, Iowa, that in everything that we do, as we worship through song, through giving, through the preaching of the Word of God, that your name would be lifted high. Heavenly Father, even as we turn our attention to this passage this morning, may we see the call to unity and where there is disunity in our hearts, Heavenly Father, root it out. Work in us. Confront all jealousies, bitterness and anger that is in our hearts. Give us the strength. Even as Paul just prayed in the, Ephesians, in the end of Ephesians 3, give us the strength, Heavenly Father, to do the things that you have called us to for your glory. I pray that you would give me Boldness and authority to preach the truth with clarity. All to the glory of God. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I have kind of an embarrassing confession to make this morning as we get going. I failed a grade in school. Thankfully, I was not old enough to know how embarrassed I should be. It was kindergarten. I thought it was the greatest thing ever that I got to do it again because I loved my teacher. But I failed kindergarten. I had to take it twice. It's not the greatest start to your academic career. But the funny thing is, the reason that I failed kindergarten was not because I was not smart enough to learn what they were teaching me. The reason I failed kindergarten was because I didn't want to learn the things that they were teaching me. In fact, my mom says that I literally told her, I don't want to learn to read. I don't need to learn to read. Why would I need to do that? You see, up to that point in my life, I didn't need to read. Reading hadn't been a big expectation. So if I haven't need to, needed to read up to this point, why put in the time now to learn to read? I don't need to read. I'm getting along just fine without it. Why learn it now? You see, reading was not expected of me at age three or four. But at five, it was a reasonable expectation. It's the same with walking. Walking was not expected of me at three months. But by one to two years, it was a pretty reasonable expectation. 
It's not that I was being expected to do something that I was ill-equipped or unable to do. Yes, reading would take work on my end to develop the skills that are necessary to read and to read well. And at first, it would be very uncomfortable and difficult and frustrating. But over time, with practice, not only has reading become second nature, it's become something that I enjoy doing, something I love to do. It would be very difficult to do the thing that the Lord has called me to, to be a pastor, if I couldn't read. So it turns out, young people in here, you do need to learn to read. It's important. As we turn our attention to Ephesians 4 this morning, Paul, here in this passage, is beginning to put some practical meat on the theological bones of Ephesians 1-3. to In this passage, there is a not unreasonable expectation that our identity and our riches in Christ will impact our everyday lives. There's an expectation here that you who have been brought to life in Christ will actually live like you are alive. So this morning as we work our way through this passage, we'll see your calling, your walk, and your reason. Your calling, your walk, and your reason. Live like you are rich in Christ. First thing we see this morning is your calling in Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk worthy. You'll notice that Ephesians 4.1 begins with a transition phrase, I therefore... The therefore of Ephesians 4.1 looks back to Paul's prayer and the benediction at the end of Ephesians 3. But not just there, but even beyond that, the therefore here at the beginning of Ephesians 4 looks back to all of Ephesians 1-3. to Therefore, based on all of this that is ours in Christ, all of these riches that are ours in Christ, all that God has done for us in Christ, based on all this, there's an expectation. Paul, in these first three chapters of Ephesians, has very carefully laid out a solid theological foundation. And it stretches from God's election of you in eternity past in Ephesians 1, to your present salvation and participation in the church in Ephesians 2, all the way to Paul's confidence that he who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think will complete what he has begun in Ephesians 3. It is these truths that now guide Paul really into the second half of Ephesians. There's a clear shift here in the book. Chapters 1 to 3, the foundation, the theology. Chapters 4 to the end, the application then. What does that look like? I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, It's the second time in as many chapters that Paul has used this phrase, prisoner. In chapter 3, verse 1, prisoner of Jesus Christ here, prisoner of the Lord. And there's a reason why Paul keeps drawing on that. 
We talked as we jumped into Ephesians the fact that, that Paul is literally in prison at this time. This is a prison epistle. And so here in Ephesians 4, it's important to note that Paul is not writing from a place of privilege and comfort. Paul's not sitting up in an ivory tower saying, hey guys, this is what I expect of you. While he's getting grapes fed to him and just relaxing. Paul's in prison writing this. He's living the very truth that he is preaching. Paul understands that the theology of Ephesians 1-3, to these deep truths that he has been writing, they have a deep impact on who you are and how you act. Regardless of the circumstances in which you find yourself. Paul is a prisoner of the Lord, and he is walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which he has been called, even in prison. So it's not unreasonable that he expects others to do what they've been called to do. It's like the person who offers all kinds of parenting advice with no parenting experience. They'll likely not be taken very seriously. They're not speaking from a place of experience. It's, it's easy to tell someone what to do when you are not the one responsible for that little life. Or in all other areas of life. When someone who is not an expert or has no experience read a book, and so now they're an expert, and they, they can tell you all about it. You don't want someone who's only read a book to be the one working on your car. Right? You want someone with experience. Paul here in Ephesians 4 is speaking from a place of experience. Even behind bars. Even behind bars, Paul is abundantly rich in Christ. The impact of the gospel cannot be held back. And so what we find is Paul rejoicing, Paul being faithful and preaching the gospel at all times because his identity and the riches that are his in Christ are unaffected by his circumstances. Paul can no more stop walking in a manner worthy of the calling to which he's been called. He can no longer he, he can no more change the reality of who he is in Christ than he can change the color of his hair. It's a part of who he is now. He has been changed. And so it's from this experience that he didn't write to this expectation. I there, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you were called. I beseech you. The calling to which you have been called is a call to live according to the truth. As Daryl Bach says, you have access to enablement by faith that allows you to live as witnesses to being a reconciled person in the world. 
Live like you have been changed. Not only have you been changed, but you've been empowered to live like you've been changed. Your calling is to live as one who's been reconciled and made new. In fact, Paul uses this very language in another passage in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 to 21. Here Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In that passage, as in here in Ephesians 4, there is a reality and there's an expectation. God has reconciled us, and now he's called us to be ambassadors and ministers. That's the same thing that we see here in Ephesians. All of these truths of Ephesians 1 to 3, there's an expectation. There's a reality that you live according to that. In fact, Paul here in Ephesians 4, 1, is playing off the language of walk. This is not the first time he's used that word walk in the book of Ephesians. You may remember back in Ephesians 2. You who, once you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you walked. What does that mean? You lived according to that. You were dead. So you lived like you were dead. And once you walked, what did that look like? You were following the course of this world. You were following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that's now at work, at work in the sons of disobedience. But as we come to Ephesians 4, there's a different walk. But now, in Christ, you are called to walk as one who has been brought to life. No longer walk as one who is dead. No longer walk following the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air. But now you walk alive in Christ. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Walk worthy of the gospel. Walk like you are alive. Maybe we understand the big idea here, but, but what does it look like to do this? Yes, I get it. I should be walking. I should be living like I'm a Christian. I should be living like I've been brought to life. This vivid language that Paul uses of death and life. I get that. I've been made new. But practically, what does that look like? That's what you see in verses 2 to 3. What does it look like to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called? 
as Ephesians 2-3 tells us. It's like this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In these passages, we see your walk. You've been called, verse 1, but now what does it look like to walk according to that call? Really, in essence, the rest of the book of Ephesians will be spent unpacking what it looks like to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. But Paul here begins with four key characteristics that mark the life of the believer. And specifically, Paul begins by noting their relationships to one another. And he calls them to unity. That's significant. Mark that. The first place that Paul starts when he comes to talking about what it looks like to live according to the gospel that you've been saved by, to live like you've been saved, is how we interact with one another. The truth will be seen in your relationships. That's significant. The first thing he says is humility. With all humility. Humility is lowliness of mind. And in all honesty, it's really not shocking that humility is here, is it? Is it any wonder that those who are in Christ would be called to be humble just as the Lord who has saved them was humble? Philippians 2, this Jesus Christ who's in the form of God but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Think about that. God humbled himself for you. Is it any shock then that to live like I have been changed, to live like I am Christ would be to be humble like my God? It's a submissive virtue. Philippians 2 describes it as viewing others as more significant than myself. We must recognize that we have been saved to serve both God and man. And really the idea of humbleness gets to the core of the gospel, does it not? The gospel brings humility. In the gospel, I have to recognize that I am not all that. I am a sinner, completely unworthy. I cannot save myself. I am one who is totally dependent on the grace of God. That is a humbling reality. And that is part of the, why, part of the reason why the gospel is a stumbling block. We don't like to be humbled. I'm not that bad. Brothers and sisters, you are that bad. 
And praise the Lord that the grace of God is that good. The gospel pushes us towards humility. So is it any wonder that to live like I have been saved, like I have been made new, looks like being humble? But it's not just humility. It's also gentleness. And again, our Lord describes himself as gentle. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, he describes himself as gentle and lowly. Not as big and mighty. He describes himself as gentle and lowly. Again, is it any wonder that we then would be called likewise to be gentle? But what is gentleness? What does it look like to be gentle? Really, it's a tenderness of heart. We understand gentleness when it comes to handling things, right? You, you pick up something that's breakable, you hold it very gently. You're very careful, you're very purposeful with it. It carries the, kind of the same idea when it comes to handling people. We are very gentle with one another. We are mindful, we are purposeful. And that begins with a tenderness of heart. In fact, in Galatians 5.23, gentleness is listed as a fruit of the Spirit. It's a readiness to forgive, a willingness to waive my own rights. In fact, you can see the connection here to humility. Even in the passage, they're connected. Humility and gentleness. They go hand in hand. Those who are humble are more likely to be those who are gentle. It's a recognition of, in my humility, I know my own unworthiness. And so then I'm able to be gentle with others because I am not shocked by their unworthiness. I can look past it. I can glory in the grace of God that has saved us both. Being humble, being gentle, being patient, long-suffering, which, like gentleness, patience is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. And again, just like humility and gentleness before it, patience is a character trait of our God. His patience in Romans 2.4 and in 2 Peter 3.9 that is meant to lead men to repentance. It is a characteristic that wants what is best and is willing to overlook faults and shortcoming, recognizing that there is more at stake. It is patience that waits for God to accomplish His purpose in another's life rather than demanding that they change and grow on my schedule. It's recognizing that a college student is going to make mistakes. 
a high schooler is going to make mistakes. They're not going to be as mature or as wise as a seasoned saint. A new Christian, regardless of how old they are, they're going to make mistakes. But are you patient enough to love them anyway and to allow the Lord to work in them and with them and through them? Discipleship breaks down pretty early if you're not patient. It takes patience. We are all in different places in our Christian walk and it takes patience to walk together. So you have humility, you have gentleness, you have patience listed here. Finally, you have loving forbearance. It's the fourth characteristic of our walk. And really, loving forbearance kind of brings all of these characteristics together and it puts them in the clear context of one another. Humility, Gentleness and patience are all motivated by love for one another. And, it's and they're necessary in order to forbear with one another. <coughs> in fact, it is bearing with one another in love that helps to further define and put practical feet to the call to walk in humility and gentleness and patience. I can say that I am humble. I can say I am gentle. I can say I am patient. But where's the evidence? The evidence is in my ability to forbear with someone else, is it not? To put up, if you will. And notice here that it's not a suggestion. Bearing with one another in love. You must bear with one another. You must bear with one another. Why? Because of verse 3. Because there's a greater goal here. Because you must endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. It's an imperative there. Endeavor. Bear with one another. Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is the big reason here. This is what all of these characteristics have been building towards. This is the reason that you must be humble and gentle and patient, which makes its way out to looking like forbearing with one another in love. Why? Because the calling that you have been called to is a walk that is marked by unity. You must keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You must do it. It's not a suggestion. You must fight for it. You must fight to keep the peace. It's an active pursuit of to strive after without relenting. 
Paul doesn't merely say, hope for peace, guys. He says, pursue it with all your strength. Fight for it. It's of the utmost importance. Why? Because it is the unity of the Spirit that is seen in the bond of peace. It is unity that has been brought by the Spirit. We saw that in Ephesians 2, did we not? You who are far off have been brought in. You who are dead have been brought alive. You who had no hope have been given hope. He has brought Jew and Gentile together. He has brought unity. How? In Christ. Why? So that he then could reconcile them to God in the church. This is spirit-empowered unity. And it is seen in the peace that should mark the church. That's the idea there of the bond of peace. Peace is the bond that holds us together. Peace that is spirit-empowered. The idea here is essentially a command for the Ephesians to live outwardly and physically what is true inwardly and spiritually. You have peace, so fight to live in that peace. Fight to keep that peace. What would church look like if we took a passage like this seriously? If we interacted with one another with this mindset, if what was most important to us was not to fight for our rights, but to keep the unity that is ours in the peace provided by the Spirit. And even as I say that, don't think about someone else. Don't let, if you're sitting over here, don't let your mind go over here to that, that one person. Man, I hope they're listening. I hope they get this. Start with yourself in your own heart. The reality is that churches are made up of people from all different backgrounds and experiences, and there are a lot of opinions among us. There are a lot of different preferences. And yet behind it all, what binds us together is the gospel, it is Christ. And in the end, we have far more in common in Christ than we have not in common. And how sad is it when the church allows opinions and preferences and things that in the end don't really matter? When we allow those things to distract from the truth and destroy the peace that is yours in Christ by the Spirit. Hear what Paul is saying here. Now I think it's also important to pause here and to be very careful that we all are hearing Paul rightly and we're not hearing what he's not saying. Don't mishear what Paul is saying. Paul is not here saying to, in the church, foster an environment that allows sin to thrive because no one wants to confront each other because peace is more important. If I were to bring up that sin, that could cause conflict. Ephesians 4 says, strive after peace, so we'll let that go. 
Brothers and sisters, Paul addresses that kind of mindset very strongly in 1 Corinthians. That is not love. That is cowardice. Love confronts willful and bold sin because it loves that person. It wants what is best. What Paul is talking about here, the pursuit of peace overlooks and is willing to forgive personal offense. Standing in line at the water fountain and someone says something or takes longer than you want them to. You're willing to let that go. Someone, we're Baptists, so someone takes the seat that you always sit in. Are you willing to let that go? <laughs> Are you willing to let that go? It's a mindset towards one another. Again, another thing that Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying to allow false doctrine to, keep, to creep into the church in order to preserve the peace. That's wrong, but I don't want to address it. Because that could cause issues. Again, Paul addresses that very strongly in First and Second Timothy and other passages. The truth is worth defending and dividing over. Because the reality is that you cannot have peace with someone who does not have the peace of God. So don't mishear what Paul is saying here. Rather, see what he is saying. Hear his heart. It is a call to love one another and to live in the reality of who we are in Christ and the riches that are ours in Christ and the peace that is ours in Christ. Finally, what's the reason for this? What's the reason? Because as we see in verses 4 to 6, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Why should we strive so hard after the spirit-empowered unity that is ours in the bond of peace? Why is this so important? Because it's true. Because even as I've already said, at the end of the day, you have more in common with your brothers and sisters in Christ than you do with anyone else. It starts first with the reality that you are members of one body. This body is the church, the body of Jesus Christ, even as you've already seen in Ephesians 2, verses 11 to 22, and Ephesians 3, verse 6. You're part of the same body. Right? Your foot does not spite your hand. Your foot needs your hand, and your hand needs your foot. They are invested in the health and the thriving of the same body. How silly and foolish is it for us to tear one another down, not realizing that we are all invested in the same body. It is to all of our benefit that all of us thrive in Christ. Oh, that the church would see that. That we would catch that vision, that we would understand. That we are all invested in each other. You're part of the same body. 
You have the same Spirit who indwells and empowers you. And here's the real kicker. You have the same hope in the end. You have the same hope. If you cannot stand your brothers and sisters in Christ, I have some bad news for you. You're going to be with them for eternity. So figure it out. You're part of the same body. You have the same spirit who empowers you. And you have the same hope. Not only are you members of one body, but you have one salvation. In fact, that's the reason why you're members of one body. You have the same spirit. It's the reason why you have the same hope. It's because you have the same salvation. You've experienced the same grace of God. There is one Lord of salvation and only one. As Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is one Lord. And he's all of your Lords. And there is one way. By faith alone. That's what we're seeing in the Reformation even this week. As we study the Reformation, that was really the, the core, what they got back to. It's by faith alone. In Christ alone. There's one Lord of salvation. There's one way of salvation. We've already seen that. Faith alone. We've seen that clearly articulated in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. And there's one sign of salvation, a universal testimony of faith, baptism. It doesn't matter what language you speak. We could go to some tribe in the middle of Africa, and if we were to stand there with a little gathering of believers, and we see someone being dunked under the water, we know that what that testifies to, do we not? We don't need a translator to tell us what they are doing now. We know. We get it. There's one testimony to our salvation and our one Lord and our one hope. And you have one Father. You are brothers and sisters. In Christ. You have one Father. Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 15, Paul's already briefly introduced us to the fatherhood of God, did he not? For this reason, I bow my knees to who? To the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. We talked about that last week. The testimony there to the, the greatness, the power, the, the goodness of God. And he's your father. Is that not what we marveled at last week as we looked at that passage, that this great God, creator God, the one from whom the very idea of father comes, the one who created the stars that Paul, as he bows in prayer, has his ear. He has access because he's his father. And the marvel of Ephesians 4.6 is he's not just Paul's father. 
Paul did not have some special access that you do not have. He's your father. We have one father. We all have access. He is your God. He is your father. And he is in wor- at work in you. Think about that. The God that cannot be held by the universe is inside of you. He's at work in you. He's accomplishing his purposes. So brothers and sisters, strive after unity. You are members of one body. You have one salvation and you have one father. So strive after unity. Lay aside your rights. Let your interactions be marked by humility and gentleness and patience and love that forbears. I'll go ahead and tell you this now so you're not surprised. You're going to be let down by your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're going to frustrate each other. You're going to annoy each other. I am going to fail you, and I'm going to frustrate you and annoy you. But don't let that harm what is true in Christ. Strive for unity. Lay down your rights. Look to the cross. And live like it is true. Fight for the unity that is yours in Christ.